0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, He Made the Two, One. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, July 22, 2012. Three years ago, I attended a Jewish shiva at a friend's house in our neighborhood, In Hebrew, Shiva means seven, and in this instance refers to the week-long ritual of mourning for a loved one who has died. About 30 of us gathered in the backyard to honor Bobby's life. A young woman rabbi led us in a series of readings from a small booklet, about half of which we recited in English, and about half of which she chanted in Hebrew. Family family members then shared fond fond memories of a life that was cut too short too quickly. Halfway through the 30-minute service, I experienced a jolt when we recited together the psalm for this week. That most beloved of all passages in Scripture, Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. If I had shut my eyes, I could have imagined myself to be worshipping in almost any Christian church in the world. How remarkable, I thought, that this Jewish service should be so Christian. Later, and especially as I reflected on Paul's remarks to the Ephesians for this week in Ephesians two eleven to 22 I had a brilliant glimpse of the obvious, and upon even further reflection, I realized how typical was my thinking, and how my attitudes had uh, and how attitudes like mine across the last two millennia have done so much damage in Jewish Christian relations. No, my friend's Shiva was not Christian, rather my Christianity was Jewish as a Gentile. I had had it backwards. Christians are not the we and Jews them. It would be more theologically accurate for Jews to see themselves as us and Gentiles like me as them. That, in essence, is what Paul tells the Gentile followers of Jesus in Ephesus. And he goes even further, rejecting all such us-against-them rhetoric and we-they antagonisms, in favor of one harmonious humanity. The Old Testament text this week from 2 Samuel 7 makes a clever and important play on words. We read how King David, who enjoyed his own regal house, a palace, wanted to build a house, i.e. a temple, for Yahweh. But that was not to be. Instead, Yahweh would build a house, that is a dynasty, for David. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish (coughs) his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever." Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And the psalmist for this week repeats the Davidic promise. Psalm 89, 28 and 29. I will maintain my love to David forever. My covenant with him will never fail. I will establish his line forever forever and his throne as long as the heavens endure." The first storytellers of Jesus go to great lengths to identify these Davidic promises with Jesus himself. He is the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. He is the son of David. And so all of the first followers of Jesus were, quite naturally, only Jewish. Most people in the decades after the death and resurrection of Jesus construed his followers a sect of Judaism, which, in fact, it was. Even the so-called anti-Semitism in the Gospels, says Paula Fredrickson in her book Augustine and the Jews, is a misleading anachronism. Horrendous anti-Semitism would come later. But initially, says Fredrickson, the denunciation of Jews in the gospel is what she calls a fraternal name-calling within Judaism. The acrimony and denunciations, she says, were one of the most unmistakably Jewish things about the Jesus movement. But bit by bit and across the years, as already hinted at in the gospels themselves, Gentiles began to follow Jesus. And this raised an obvious question. How, if at all, could impure Gentiles fit into this Jewish story of salvation? In his remarks to the Gentile believers at Ephesus, Paul uses the most unflattering language to describe the Gentile dilemma. Just remember, he says, you uncircumcised Gentiles were separate from the Jewish Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenant of promise, without hope and without God in the world. Gentiles, wrote Paul, are far away in space and time to the Vidic promise of salvation that was fulfilled in Jesus. Paul uses a different metaphor to make a similar point when he writes to the Gentile believers in Rome. The Jews are what he calls natural branches. Gentiles are a wild olive offshoot that has been grafted in among the others and now shares in the nourishing sap from the olive root, Romans 11:17. You Gentiles do not support the Jewish root, but the root supports you, said Paul. Or as Jesus himself bluntly put it to the Samaritan woman at the well in John four twenty two, salvation is from the Jews. And so Gentiles do well to remember their honorary guest status. It's no wonder that Paul describes the inclusion of Gentiles as a mystery. He writes in Ephesians, This mystery is that through the Jewish gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, sharers together in the promise in Jesus Christ. Gentiles who were far away, he says, have been brought near in Jesus. The foreigners have been made fellow citizens. The aliens adopted into God's family. Paul summarizes the meaning and message of Jesus in a single word. He himself is our peace. Beyond the many antagonisms of religion, ethnicity, race, class, and gender, Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 14 to 18, the epistle for this week, Jesus made the two one and has destroyed the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. Such is the radically egalitarian standing of all humanity, before a loving and impartial God. In this new humanity, Paul tells both the Colossians and the Galatians, there is no Greek or Jew, male or female, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Paula Frederickson thus argues that Paul, who describes himself as both a Hebrew of Hebrew and an apostle to the Gentiles, never intended to replace Judaism with brand new Christianity. From first to last, she says, Paul remained thoroughly Jewish. He hoped to convert Gentiles into honorary Jews, not to convert Jews into Christians. The tragic irony of this, and the main point of Fredrickson's book, is that the parting of the ways between Christianity and Judaism was by no means inevitable. For a book this week, I review a title called Drink the Bitter Root, A Search for Justice in Healing in Africa. The author is Gary Geddes. Berkeley Counterpoint Books 2011, 232 pages. The Canadian travel writer and human rights advocate Gary Geddes has written and edited over 40 books that have been translated into seven languages and won a dozen awards. In this volume, at the age of 68 he visits a land his extensive travels had never covered africa and in particular a half dozen hot spots successive chapters tell of his travels in uganda rwanda democratic republic of congo ethiopia and somaliland which seceded from somalia in 1991 What interests him most, he writes, are not the statistic enormities like 800,000 killed in 100 days in Rwanda, but the personal stories of individual people. And so while he has done his academic reading about these places and sprinkles his narrative with literary flourishes, he mainly tells stories about the people he interviewed. Rape victims, child soldiers, doctors, journalists, poets, aid workers, NGOs, lawyers at the ICC, and internally displaced people. Geddes is well aware of the ambiguities that attend Africa. Its problems are many and complex. The legacy of colonialism has been exacerbated by neo-colonial and corporate greed. Not to mention corruption, incompetence, and dysfunction in African leadership. Foreign aid is a bane and a blessing. I was shocked, for example, to read that 90% of Ethiopia's budget comes from foreign aid. Yes, ethnic tensions are important, but so are economics, politics, natural resources, religion, and environmental degradation. The U.N. is a blundering bureaucracy, but it's still the best and necessary game in town. Geddes writes with passion about human rights, but is painfully aware that he himself has spent too much time at the desk and too little in the arena facing the lions. Then there's the continual tension between the need for restoration and reconciliation in Africa and the desire for revenge and retribution. Or, as the subtitle of his book puts it, the tension between healing and justice. Maria Vargas of the Danish Refugee Council in Somaliland put it this way, We do our best, but it's not easy. I liked how Geddes situates himself as a beneficiary to receive from Africa, rather than as a benefactor to give. He admits that his efforts to identify with Africans could feel intrusive and even false. He begins his book with the wisdom of his fellow Canadian, Jean Vonnier, founder of the Larch Homes for the Mentally and Physically Handicapped. Vonnier once said, People who are weak have something to bring us, that they are important people and it's important to listen to them. In some mysterious way, they change us. Being in a world of the strong, the powerful, you collect attitudes of power and hardness and invulnerability. It is vulnerability that brings us together. There's nothing ambiguous about vonnier's wisdom when applied to what Africa contribute to the West, which has its own many and complex problems. Gary Geddes, Drink the Bitter Root. For film this week, I review a documentary from the year 2011. It's called Turtle, the Incredible Journey. It's an epic journal, Journey for the Loggerhead Turtle. A hatchling begins life buried alive on the beaches of Florida. After three days of digging, the tiny turtle surfaces, then heads straight for the ocean, where it spends the rest of its life. After two days of swimming, it buries itself in a raft of seaweed and rides the watery superhighway of the Gulf Stream currents. Every few minutes it must surface for air. There are problems aplenty that threaten. Oil slicks left by monster tankers human trash, fishnets, predators, and fierce storms that blow them ashore. When the turtle hits the Azor Islands off the coast of Africa, it turns around and heads back to the Caribbean. Twenty-one years and eight thousand miles later, it finds a mate, then returns to the beach in Florida, where it was born, to lay its own eggs in the sand. There are lots of nature films out there. I thought this one was fantastic. The narration, music, and scenery were excellent. At 75 minutes, it's also short enough, making it fantastic for a family film night. I watched Turtle on Netflix streaming. And for Poetry this week, we've posted a poem by Robert Louis Stevenson. Robert Louis Stevenson lived from 1850 to 1894. The title is called The Celestial Surgeon. If I have faltered more or less in my great task of happiness... If I have moved among my race and shown no shining morning face, If beams from happy human eyes have moved me not, If morning skies, books, and my food and summer rain Knocked on my sullen heart in vain, Lord, thy most pointed pleasure take And stab my spirit broad awake. The Celestial Surgeon by Robert Louis Stevenson. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, July 22, 2012. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.